Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. I'm John Tito, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Max Meisterhunt. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully, everybody's doing well. I am relaxing today, enjoying the rain that's outside and waiting for drier days. Um, I've got some client visits coming up, which I'm excited for. So those on my list, I'm looking forward to getting your property before hunting season. Those that still need the reports, they're coming. I apologize for the delays, but these things happen. I'm working on as many things as I can at this point. The other piece of this is uh, I want everyone to get in your woods. You know, these you know last few months before hunting season is really a critical time to finish chores and do some of the things that we've kind of talked about, you know, throughout the summer. So, you know, don't uh, put those things aside. Now's the time to get out there and stay motivated. All right. Well, I got Tim Russell back. If everybody remembers Tim, Tim's a forester, good buddy of mine. I'm happy to have him back here on the show. It's been a little bit for him and I, we're going to talk about beech trees today. This is a conversation we've wanted to have for some time and uh, we're going to just freestyle. I'm going to ask Tim some questions and get his opinion on things and we'll go from there. Hey, Tim, how you doing? I'm all right. Also enjoying the same rain after a very hot day yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me on, John. Yeah, happy to have you back. And uh, it's, it's been a little bit for you and I to, uh, to talk. I'm actually looking forward. I hope that uh, you and I get to go down to that. We got a little trip planned. We're, in September, we're going to go down and visit Steve Shirk and a few of my friends, Josh Stryker, who's on this podcast, few other people and uh tim i hope you go too because i think it'd be nice to spend some time and i think i have a couple clients going as well so i think that'll be a, a fun fun little trip in september i plan on it and i'm very much looking forward to it <laughs> good good all right so i want to talk about beach trees with you and i texted you the other day and i forgot this was a topic and i i know i i think i identified this a while ago on the podcast and you were like, oh, I hate beech trees. So, you know, I, I don't know what you had going on, but I think you're in the middle of some project. So maybe you can explain that. Yeah. So uh, beech are a uh, native hardwood tree that we have in uh, most of the eastern United States. Uh, it is very low preferability for whitetail deer. It's also not particularly desirable in a commercial sense, not to say it's not a you know, it isn't a non-commercial tree. There's potentially a market for cordwood, and if you can get a decent log out of it, but even at its best, it doesn't sell very well. Um, but because it's not a particularly desirable tree commercially, um, because it's not a particularly desirable tree to have in terms of deer management, um, and because of some disease issues that we have with it that prevent it from producing a nice log and also cause it to proliferate, 
Um, oftentimes we have a lot more beach in our woods than we would like to have. And that often means that to take care of our woods, we've got to take out some of the beach and not just cut and remove, but also often take additional measures to, to kill beach. Uh, and that means using herbicides. And I think at the time you, you called me, I was working on some hack and squirt where I was just going through the woods, hacking all the beech trees and squirting glyphosate into the open wound. <laughs> in that case, um, you know, when I, when I went to school and I was in silviculture class, one of the phrases that came up uh, somewhat often is, a good beach is a dead beach. Uh, I certainly wouldn't want to see it eradicated from the forest. It's a native tree. Um, when it's healthy enough to do so, it produces a nut. There are a lot of different wildlife that use the tree, but some of the properties I've worked on and many other people who spend a lot of time in the forest have seen this as well, especially in the Northeast where beach bark disease has kind of festered for a much longer time. You can get out there and find that upwards of 90% of your stems are beach, particularly after multiple iterations of logging, particularly where deer densities are high and the deer are eating other species and leaving behind the beach. And then also particularly where we have this beach bark disease complex. Yeah. And I think there's, there's some nuances to this as well. And there's a new disease that, that I've been become more familiar is a beach leaf disease. And we'll probably hit that at the end, but let's talk about the stands and a little bit of the silviculture aspect of it. You know, generally speaking, at least in our woodlots, at least most people were trying to, you know, develop a diverse overstory and understory. That's generally the goal. Uh, some will be for economic value, some for wildlife value. And this particular tree we identified as not necessarily an economic resource per se. And then, you know, in that same sense, you know, there is a wildlife value to it. You did identify that, you know, the species themselves are not usually edible. Now, in some stands and areas that I go, I get to see beach pretty much very prevalent in some areas, especially, you know, I guess these, you know, young clonal areas, or we'll say seedlings or saplings in, in some particular zones. And in those areas, they are browsed pretty heavily. And that is a indicator of poor nutritional content or availability, as well as likely not a diverse set of plants, particularly in the woody stage, so that young woody stage. So that's one consideration. So, Tim, I guess my question for you is when you walk into these stands that have been abused, so I can think about times when I've been out in Western New York where they harvested a lot of cherry and, you know, all equipment was running around, logging equipment, and they're hitting, running over these shallow rooted plants. And next thing you know, we got sprouts all over the place, root suckers. And in those cases, you get kind of, have, we call it beach brush. And these, you know, dense stands of beach that aren't being managed whatsoever. Some have, you know, the beach bark disease that we, we just referenced a second ago. And uh, now you've got an infestation of beach, so to speak. Do you deal with that quite a bit? Has that been something you've been, you know, seeing on the landscape quite commonly? It is something I see on the landscape commonly. It is something that I deal with quite a bit. And in some cases, it actually, you know, can leave you with relatively few options because, you know, oftentimes it's difficult to pitch to a landowner that, hey, what's best for your woods is going to come at a cost and might not be carried by the revenue from a timber sale. And in some cases it might be where, you know, the revenue from a timber sale might be more than what it's going to cost to treat the beach and have that desired outcome. But some of these properties that are really heavy to beach, 
uh, you know, <laughs> you come back and say, Hey, we could do some beach treatments, but, uh, there's, there's not going to be a whole, you know, a whole lot of timber value out there to be able to, to, to pay for that. You know, that, that can be, that can become a challenge certainly. Yeah. I got a question for you. So beach typically regenerate in, in two ways, right? I mean, root suckers, right? That's, that's one way. And the other way is, you know, producing a nut. And we talked a little bit about wildlife, but in this case, at least in your experience, have you seen a lot of beech nuts on the landscape? It depends. It depends where. Um, so a few things. Um, one, we talked about uh, the beech bark disease and how badly afflicted the trees can become. And maybe we'll get into that in a little bit more detail and explain how that disease works. But I'd let you know in some cases where you have a beech tree that appears to have a crown laden with nuts but it's badly afflicted by beech bark disease, you might actually have a tree that has hollow husks that doesn't actually have a nut inside it for wildlife, giving the appearance that you're growing the food um, when you're not. Um, what's, what's interesting is one way, and this isn't always something you see, but one way you can tell a root sucker that sprouted back, is, as you alluded to, is if you're walking around and seeing something the size of a little seedling near the ground and it's got a beech nut on it, and it's, you know, if it was a seedling, you'd think, hey, that's probably not big enough and old enough to have the plant hormones or, or the energy to put out a nut. That's one sign that, hey, this is, this is sprouting back from, uh, from a larger tree. So um, that's something really important to understand about beech because there are, you know, when we work with softwoods, we don't usually expect to get a lot of sprouts back like we do with hardwoods. Then there are some hardwoods that you'll get stump sprouts that stump sprout very well, like black cherry, red maple, they might stump sprout, but you don't tend to get as many root sprouts um, as you do when you're, when you're working with beech. Some hardwoods don't really get that many stump sprouts. So like sometimes you'll see sugar maple getting stump sprouts, but they don't do it as much as, as some other species do. But with beech, you can get these root sprouts and stump sprouts as well, but also these root sprouts that crop up everywhere and it is a natural response of the tree to disturbance or, you know, if a tree is dying, such, you know, the main stem is damaged, it might send up those suckers. But the issue with beech, and we often tie it to beech bark disease and, and correctly, um, the issues we've seen with beech predated having beech bark disease as a problem. And it was noticed early on that after logging operations, like you pointed out, because those shallow roots get scarred, you get a lot of sprouts coming back. And the other important characteristic to keep in mind in working with beech is that it is extremely tolerant of shade. When we talk about the silvical characteristics of a tree or how it behaves in a forested setting, how it responds to competition, that sort of thing, um, we often talk about shade tolerance of a species, whether it's something we're trying to grow or something that we're trying to kill. Trees which are less tolerant of shade tend to have the advantage of growing much more rapidly um, and then trees which are more tolerant of shade tend to grow more slowly but then they can tolerate that competition a little bit better so you might walk into the woods and be in an even age stand and see a sapling in the understory that didn't really get into an upper canopy position and you find a maple tree like that and it's doing just fine but the cherry stem next to it is just dead because cherry although it grows faster is very intolerant of shade and beech is kind of on the other end of the spectrum where they can persist in some very dark conditions for a long time. Yeah, and I think a lot of times when those cherry trees were taken out in the 90s, all of a sudden you get this opportunity for these understory or shade talent trees to kind of take over. 
And I've also heard people refer to beach as native, but invasive in the sense, like we talked about earlier, the suckering that occurs, the root suckering that occurs. Uh, one thing I'll mention beach trees is they're probably one of the best trees to hinge cut. Their structure and the ability to stand is really awesome. And that's unrelated to this conversation, but it is important to building structure in the landscape. And these trees that are dying, you know, the diseased trees, they provide great snags. Also, when a tree falls over, right, its ability to replenish, like the ecological state of it basically will be dead wood on the ground. Great place for salamanders and vertebrates, those type of things. So they could be a cavity tree. And again, you know, woodpeckers, you know, a lot of different animals tend to benefit from you know, these species. So it's not to think, oh, and I'll bring up another, actually, let's get to that in a second. I don't want to talk about bears yet, but um, there's there's one thing I want to mention about bears, at least my experience has been this. But I just want to say the only statistic I looked up for this conversation was only one to 2% of the trees that are on the landscape, at least this is a statistic, are resistant of the beech bark disease. So that's such a small percentage. And I can tell you, I've seen a lot of smooth bark beech that have the cankering, but in, in small volumes. And there'll be these really isolated trees in areas that have been undisturbed by logging. And I've found, at least in the properties that I've walked over the years, just several of those pockets. I found other areas that are, you know, very, I'll, I'll say depleted because of the beech bark disease and it affects the trees in different ways. So I kind of want to know if you're in the woodlot and you're walking around, you're going to say, okay, well, and we should get to the value of beech because I don't want to degrade beech so much that we want to kill them all. But, you know, some of these areas where I have seen production, I have seen a great response by deer. And we'll, we'll explain why. But I kind of want to know from your standpoint, you're looking in the woodlot and you're saying, OK, I've got beech trees. We identify them. Typically, they hold their leaves late. They're a late dropping leaf. Right. So that, that tends to, uh, I guess, cover the the uh, the ground layer at some point. But these trees themselves, if they have this disease, Tim, what are we looking for? So the disease we're, we're talking about here, beech bark disease, is an insect fungus disease complex. So, uh, you know, you're looking for evidence both of the beech scale insect and also potentially structures from the fungus, uh, Neonectria fungus, which causes the cankers on the tree. So this fungus is basically ubiquitous in the environment it's everywhere and until a scale insect arrives on the beech tree it doesn't actually harm the the fungus does not harm the beech tree in any way um why this is i I couldn't tell you um as far as i know it's not understood but once that beech tree or uh, sorry that beech scale insect arrives on a beech tree and takes its mouth part and puts it into the bark of the tree that tree becomes very susceptible to infection from the fungus. So the first thing you might see in the early stages of the arrival of this beech scale insect is once they put their mouth part in, they kind of plant themselves there and they'll excrete like a waxy substance that looks like a little tuft of white stuff. And you've probably seen this before. You see a canker tree, you come near, you look, and there's these little white specks all over the tree. Um, And that is coming from the insect. And then as the fungus develops, as you alluded to, you get diffuse cankers. Um, So sometimes you get a canker fungus that like, it'll look like a target on the tree where it's a big open wound on the tree that the tree's trying to compartmentalize. And that's what you're seeing with almost like annual rings as the tree tries to grow over that, that damaged part from the fungus. 
and that can certainly damage the tree and damage the timber value of the tree, but often the tree lives because you're looking at a single large canker in those cases. But with beech bark disease, you get lots of little cankers all the way around the stem, and that basically girdles the tree. And then another symptom that you might see when you have a, a tree that's got the cankers on it, you can tell the disease is established. If you look really close, you might see these tiny little red dots that are spherical little um, basically fruiting bodies or reproductive structures from the fungus. And, uh, you know, you have to be pretty darn close to see them because they are, they are tiny. You can still see them with the naked eye if you've got sharp vision. But um, those, are, those are kind of the main symptoms you might notice. Or if you're coming from far, you know, far back and you haven't really seen any of the trees up close, sometimes just the fact that you're driving down the highway, you're looking into the woods, and you could tell that the beach brush is super dense. That might not have resulted from the disease, but it's often an indicator that that's at, at play there. Um, as you pointed out, beech like to hold on to their leaves much longer than most of our other broadleaf trees around here. So sometimes in fall, once all the leaves are off the other trees, you start driving around and seeing into the woods like you can't during the summer. And the beech kind of stand out because they've still got those bronze colored leaves when nothing else has leaves on them. So recently in a client visit, I, you know, I was looking at trees and it's interesting the size and age of, you know, some of these species, the point you just brought up of, maybe a tree dying, and then, you know, obviously there's some suckering as a result of that, and those trees having the same susceptible disease. You know, these clonal trees that, you know, essentially are root suckers, you know, they may have the same, likely the same incidences of disease that the the mother tree or parent tree has. Uh, These trees are self-pollinating as well, just in case anybody did or didn't know that. Uh, The the other thing I kind of want to mention is, you know, they've got these kind of like walled-off cankers. I've seen that, and they look like spots essentially so there's like ringed cankers and then walled off cankers and i'm not really sure the difference but um you know maybe that's the tree trying to kind of work through i don't know sealing off the 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 fungal issue etc anyhow regardless of that you know these trees are susceptible but you know production values of some of the species that i've been on uh some of the properties i've been on looking at kind of production values you know some of these trees in that 40 to 50 year old age class that's usually production start and then you know producing anywhere between i would say 50 to 80 years or 50 to 100 years that's typically the range i think you'd normally see but the cool part about the beech trees specifically is when you do have producing years and they could produce anywhere for i guess you know in increments of two to four to six eight years somewhere in those increments uh usually not every year at least i've not seen that and you said you mentioned the hall being you know not pollinated or there being no seedling in there specifically uh, that that obviously that fruit without that fruit obviously it's it lacks value in the landscape but i've seen you know these massive beach crops this is this is in allegheny county if anybody is familiar that's in new york state western new york i've seen major mass production and basically a lot of small mammals just the next year, you just have a, an abundance of, of animal life in those particular areas because of the, of the mass production. There's obviously a relationship to population dynamics and, and, and food production. But the cool part about beach, the thing that sucked me in at beach years and years ago is that it outcompetes acorns in a bunch of different areas, particularly protein and fat content. And fat content's really critical. And bears specifically are drawn to these particular areas and you'll see on beech trees i've seen this recently i actually saw it on a property i was just on where you'll see claw marks up a beech tree and that's an indication that that tree is a producing tree 
Uh, not always the case, but if you see claw marks, and it, it doesn't have to be bear, it could be marten or some other, you know, clawing up type animal, animal claws that, that climbs that tree for production. So there's one measure. The other thing is if you're looking around a tree and you see these seedlings uh, versus, you know, roots, uh, root suckering. And root suckering's easy to tell because if you try to pull on the, the it's hard to pull up, number one. Obviously, a, a root sucker is connected to other roots and the roots usually tra- travel laterally. That's one example. And then if you're looking at seedling, they kind of have a slightly different stem, at least at the base. And then they'll, you know, they'll have a root that travels straight downward, not connected to other root systems. As these trees start to age, the one thing that I recognize is, you know, there's, there's fungal relationships and there's also, also a, you know, rooting relationship. So these trees, you know, uh, co-locate, there'll be trees around it and it'll intermix. So you may have roots connected. So as a tree starts to grow, it's kind of hard to tell if it's a, a seedling or a root sucker. And those are just things that I've noticed on the landscape, Tim. But I think the uh, protein, fat, and fiber content as compared to acorns, at least the studies I saw, were better on beech than oak trees. Uh, but again, we've got this disease susceptibility thing here. So I kind of want to bring that up as a topic. Any any thoughts on anything I just said? Well, um Certainly, uh, there's a, a point to be made about what beech nuts might offer over acorns. Um, but I also think of areas that don't necessarily have oak or hickory or some other type of hard nut in the Adirondacks, for example, um, where I used to work close to the Adirondacks and work there a lot. Beech nut is the hard mast out there. So, um, you know, it, it can play a really important role in some ecosystems. And then, you know, of course, as you're pointing out, there are a lot of small mammals uh, as well as I love finding the beech trees with the bear claws, uh, you know, claw marks in them that you know that a, a bear climbed that tree. Um, but, you know, you got to think about a lot of other wildlife as well because, you know, some of your birds of prey, they're not eating beech nuts, but they're eating small mammals. So it, it is an important tree. Um Actually, since you're in the woods, I don't know, last season was a great season for this. Did you see any of the boogie-woogie beach aphids? <laughs> the boogie? No, I did not see boogie-woogie beach aphids. You might think you ate the wrong mushroom if you were walking through the woods and saw this thing. <laughs> I'm, well, the first time, so the first time I heard of this insect, I was working with some other foresters in a group on a, on a project in the Finger Lakes, and another forester came over and said that he saw some little fuzzy white insect on a beech tree. And there was a whole group of them and he got closer to look and he says, and then all of a sudden they started waving their asses at me. And I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking about? They're waving their asses at you. He's like, yeah, like in unison to, to the rhythm, like just waving their butts at me. And uh, it turns out that there is this little uh, beach aphid uh, that some people call the boogie woogie aphid. And if you find them, they're just hanging out. They're hanging out in a group. If you're standing underneath them, you might get some of that, like, sticky honeydew stuff that some insects excrete, like, dripping on you. I've had that happen. And you see them, and you're like, wow, these are really strange looking. And you look right at them, and just like in unison, they start, they'll turn around, they face their butts at you, and they start waving them side to side. And it is, like, the funniest thing that you almost <laughs> can't believe. <laughs> what, what am I looking at right now? But, you know they need the beech tree. And, uh, you know, it's certainly, uh, something that I'm not looking to eradicate from the woods, but, uh, you know, you get some of these lots where you've, it's been logged in the past and beech sprouted back and then there's the disease. 
And most time we worry about a tree disease because it's killing all of the tree that we want to keep. And this is kind of a strange case because the tree gets the disease and it sprouts back and then there's even more beach. And the deer don't want to eat the beach until they've eaten all of the maple and birch and potentially oak and potentially cherry. They, they walk past the beach when they have those other options. People don't particularly want to harvest that tree. And again, it's very tolerant to shade. So you could go through multiple generations of stems that, as you pointed out, the parent tree got the disease and now it sprouts back. And it's not like you're getting any natural selection toward resistance because it's a clonal propagation of the same tree. So that stem gets the disease. And this is how you end up with 95% beach. And when, you know, if I'm working in a Northern hardwood stand and we're doing a cut and the intent is to recruit seedlings and a diverse mix of seedlings, I want beech, but I also want sugar maple and red maple and yellow birch and black cherry and basswood and all the things that are supposed to be growing there. So let's, let's talk about the benefits still. So we don't, we don't go totally left on this thing. So one of the, one of the research topics uh, that I looked at years and years ago was the correlation between bear production uh, and, and beech trees. And what they've studied over the years is there's a direct correlation, at least in birth rates and uh, you know, post we'll say post uh, autumn fall. So, you know, production and then obviously availability of beach, the increase, and I, I don't remember the statistics on this, but I know it's I know it's high. The increase in bear production is likely closer to probably seventy or eighty percent. You know, producing offspring versus when there's non beach producing years. I think it's probably in the, the twenty or thirty range. And somebody can fact check me on that. I'm not going to look it up. But for you bear hunters or people that want bear on your property. You know, that, that's an option for you. Um, obviously, the thing I've seen quite often, and people can argue with me or not, but I, I've been in, in stands, and the trees are not co-located, but I have seen beech production and oak, oak production in, in the same property. Uh, they're not in the same locations, but I have seen a preference to beech nuts. And this is years and years and years ago. I didn't even really know what a beech tree was and beech nuts, but that started this whole investigation. I said, wonder why? And, and you know, it's time and place. And I was dealing with red oaks, not white oaks. So there's just one bit of data for you. But again, I saw utilization higher. Now, I also saw lower production. So in that example, I had lower production of beech nuts versus uh, red oak acorns. And so that could be something, right? It could be a, a diet selection, you know, kind of scenario as well. You know, the preference because of availability, et cetera, and uh, feast or famine kind of kind of perspective. So I just want to throw that out, totally anecdotal, something that I noticed. Uh, I did throw some statistics out because, you know, I, I want to be fact-checked by somebody, but just something to consider. So I want to get into, like, decision-making. So we have beach on the landscape. No, I've got beach on my property, and I've had to make some of these decisions, but I'm not a forester, so I want your opinion on it. We've got trees that are resistant. We're, we're pretty much saying there's very few of those based on the statistics, statistics that I gave earlier. We've got trees that are tolerant, and, and generally, those are the trees that we're focused on more than likely. And then we've got trees that are totally susceptible. Eventually, you see the tree die, and the bark starts to slough off it, et cetera, et cetera, right? and becomes just a standing snag. But the ones that are tolerant, what would be your strategy in, in those examples? Uh, and, and what would you, how would you approach a talent tree that it does have some production while you've seen it produce 
And um, it doesn't seem, you know, that it's in a dying state, so to speak, full crown, green, et cetera. Well, it might depend on what the overall envisioned future is for that stand. Am I just thinning the stand or am I trying to regenerate the stand? Um, And also, you know, how much beach is in the stand? Because if you're treating 50 acres and even if most of your beach is diseased, you could still choose an area to not poison beach or or remove beach and and try and retain it as part of the stand. Um, Certainly, if you're going through and, and killing beach and you're looking for a good candidate, to leave behind and one appears to be resistant. Um, you might be right. You might be wrong, but even if you're wrong, you're still leaving behind the healthiest beach. So it, it would stand to reason, you know, for me that you would, uh, try not to poison that tree. Um, I guess part, part of my, uh, what I'd probably be scratching my head about is, okay, how far back do I have to keep while I'm poisoning other trees? If these other ones look like they have the disease and that one doesn't, does that mean that they can't be clonal from the same root system because that one would be diseased otherwise it would right with why you know if that one doesn't have the disease then it can't just have sprouted from the same root system and that's just a guess and then also are there root grafts if i poison that tree over there am i going to end up poisoning the (laughs) the beech tree that i'm trying to keep over here so uh it, it depends and you know in many cases because of the expense of the treatment and trying to decide whether it's necessary um whether I'm thinning a stand or whether I'm really trying to regenerate the stand and establish a new cohort of seedlings might make the difference as to whether I'm going to recommend that something is done about the beach. Okay. So, and I like kind of that response and I'm not going to add to it. I'm just going to ask you if we're trying to remove beach and we find these trees that are susceptible, it's quite obvious. What are the steps that we should take to remove those individual trees and to limit the root suckering, so to speak, what would be your strategy there? So um, part of that comes down to making sure you've got kind of a good plan that's based on uh, some good measurements because it matters a lot what you're looking at in terms of the size of the beach because you could have beach that are kind of of seedling or sapling size and it's an issue. You could have trees that are of pole timber size and it's an issue. You could have trees that are more like saw timber size and diameter or in places that have been logged repeatedly and or have, you know, multiple generations of stems getting the disease and sprouting back, you might have an interspersion of trees everywhere from, you know, an ankle high seedling looking thing that's really a root sucker all the way up to a 30 inch saw timber diameter tree. So if you're really just dealing with beach whips and beach brush and you don't have some of these larger diameter trees, you might be able to deal with it in the summer mechanically with like a brush saw or come through and do a foliar spray. Um, And depending on what type of sprayer you have, like um, I've got a steel SR450 mist blower and you can get in, you know, pretty high up some of those trees that you might be able to get 15 or 20 feet high with a foliar application of glyphosate. Um, And, you know, that might take care of it. Once you're into those pole timber sized trees, you might look at doing cut stump or hack and squirt where you're either cutting off the tree and then using a concentrated glyphosate on the outer two inches of of the stump going around the edge around the vascular cambium, wetting it, but not to the point of runoff. Or, you know, in some cases doing, uh, um, I think someone called it frill and fill once, but, you know, hack and squirt where you've got your hatchet and you're you're putting the the concentrated herbicide in there. Um, With your pole timber-sized trees, 
Sometimes basal bark applications with triclopyr is an option. I haven't done it myself. What I don't like about that option particularly is you don't tend to expect good flash like you would with glyphosate. Like oftentimes if I'm uh, using her using glyphosate on beach, it's with the hope that other trees that are connected to the same root system will die as well, whereas the basal bark applications are more like a chemical girdling. Um, so there's that to consider. Well, and Tim, then, Tim, Tim, you got to explain sure. flashback. You said the term flash, so you got to make sure. I don't think people understand that term. Sure. So one of the hopes with a cut stump treatment uh, using glyphosate, and glyphosate is, is great with this, is what you might call translocation, where it's moving into the root system and it's killing other trees that are attached to the same root system. And another term for that is flash. So if I came in and I saw there were a bunch of beech whips all over the place and I just cut off the larger trees that were large enough to cut off and then there's a stump that I could put concentrated glyphosate on, I'm hoping that I come back in a couple of weeks and see that all those saplings that I did nothing to are dead and I would say, well, I got some good flash out of this treatment. Um, So that's one thing we're looking for. And that's something that I don't particularly expect to find if, if doing a basal bark ac- application of triclopyr on beech trees. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with that. And I'll, I just want to add one piece of this um, frilling or hack and squirting, whatever the terminology, I, I very rarely do it. And this is one of the only species of trees that I would actually do it to, just because of the examples that you, you brought up earlier. And um Again, one of the other strategies I've had is, you know, hinge cutting beech trees in the summertime. I don't know, Tim, if that's been, you've seen that on the landscape. I've, I've done it quite a, quite a bit in the summertime. Uh-huh. And, and mechanically, you know, the tree is not likely to live, maybe for that season, maybe a season thereafter. But it's not likely to live. And I generally don't see a lot of root suckering, you know, beyond that. I have actually hacked and scored trees, and I have got a stump response and I thought that was kind of interesting, at least, you know, higher up, maybe there was a bud there that was hidden, but I have seen that on beech trees. Interesting enough. I don't know if you have, that's a, just an oddity, maybe on my property. I've just got a funny, funny, funny group of uh, beech trees. I would expect better translocation out of a cut stump treatment than a hack and squirt. Also, I find because sometimes you get low branches on trees. I've not always, but sometimes found if I hack a tree and my, all my hacks are above the lowest branch, I'll come back and like the whole tree is dead, but that lowest branch is still alive. Um, so there's that, there's that to be yep. aware of. Yep. And sometimes I take an extra hack and I'm like trying to take off that bottom branch or just like hack just below it to make sure that it, it gets that one too. Um, so there, there's that. And uh, another one, just we're on the topic of beach, but if you live, you know, I live in New York and, I can tell you that oftentimes if I'm going through and doing the treatment to hack and squirt beach, I'm also looking at other non-commercial hardwoods like hop horn beam and striped maple that I'm doing hack and squirt on at the same time because they can come back in prolific numbers and prevent you from growing something that uh, is better timber and, and potentially better for deer. Yeah, those are good examples, trees as well. I shouldn't, I shouldn't shy away from that. I'm just telling you my experience that that's what I've done. So sure. I, I want to go kind of in, in the last piece of this, kind of talk about, you know, your take, you know, forget your forester. Let's just go on the wildlife side. And you know, we talked about the benefit of the beach nuts. We talked about bears, small mammals, uh, avians, et cetera. We've talked about a, and, and deer specifically. 
And I've talked about the structure. You know, you talked about how to manage. If you look at beach and the landscape, we're generally promoting diversity. And the one thing that I realized on my property specifically is I've got beach that's kind of in that saw timber kind of phase and great looking, definitely I don't want to say they're resistant because they're definitely not resistant, but they've tolerated the disease per se. And they look like they're in good form. And I'm waiting for production. I try to minimize logging in these two areas. And basically, it's a grouping of trees. And in that grouping, what I've been hoping for is looking for, you know, we talked about these small seedlings, just an indication of production, that there's enough production where you're getting, you know, some stowage of particular seedlings, and then you get you get the next generation. The one thing I was wondering, and I'm not sure that you've thought about this or you've seen this on the landscape, but have you seen resistant trees being transplanted in the landscape? And the only reason I bring that up is we have we had this discussion, you and I, about chestnuts. And, you know, again, different species, different issue. But, you know, is there an opportunity for beech to be replenished in the landscape um, where, where these species, you know, there are the resistant trees per se, you know, have you seen an increase or thought in any of that area? Or is it just, well, a good beach is a dead beach, and that's the mantra nowadays? I'm not aware of any efforts to identify resistant trees and capture those genetics and propagate it out on the landscape. Um, that would be interesting. And I certainly have gotten into those areas where I find a lone beach that's not diseased. And I wonder, did the scale insect just not make it here. But I've also been in those cases where I there's diseased beach everywhere. And for some reason, there's that one stem that's perfectly smooth and it's 10, 12, 14 inches, whatever it is that it's been there a while. And so has the disease. And for reasons I don't understand, and hopefully maybe it's genetics there, that tree is doing just fine. So, uh, there's at least some, some hope there. And, uh, yeah, I guess, I was uh, I was kind of trained to think that way, and over time, I, I no longer really feel that way. That a good beach is a dead beach, but it's like any other interfering plant; it needs to be managed to a tolerable level that we're able to grow what we're trying to grow. Yeah, and and I think that's a, a good way, probably, to to end this. I think thinking about clusters of trees that seem to be somewhat tolerant. You know, keeping those on the landscape, thinking about the grouping of the trees. These are also, they're also wind pollinated as well, right? So it's recognizing the pollination potential. And then to your point, finding those genetic trees that seem to be, at least in this case, maybe less susceptible and uh, available on the landscape. So, you know, promoting those on the landscape. You know, this is no different with a lot of the species we've talked about previously on this, you know, on this, on this podcast is, is thinking more depthly about each individual tree, defining its purpose, benefit, you know, how it, how it prescribes itself in the landscape. Like probably a question somebody would maybe ask in the Midwest is, well, if I run fire through it, can I kill all the beach? You certainly would kill a lot of the beach during the growing season. So the case is beach aren't using those areas where fire is usually the, the resource that you would use as like a tool. Uh, but, but you could run fire through there, but I can tell you if we run fire through there in, um, you know, in the, in the, in the dormant season, you'll get a, even a flusher growth of beach. And so, you know, there, there's just, there's just one little thing to think about there. But again, I, I don't think those environments typically are, you know, kind of these fire ecology areas, so to speak, you know, uh, so just kind of want to throw that out as an, another perspective, because I think people might, you know, use fire as a resource. Although you could, 
I don't know, Tim, I'm just thinking you, you, I use these propane torches all the time when I don't want to put herbicide in an area and, uh, I could use, uh, my propane torch to, to burn, you know, the cambium layer, et cetera. So that, that is one, one option, so to speak. So I don't sure. know, just, just an idea. <laughs> and I think you made a good point that it really does matter when you're treating the beach one way or another, whether it's the dormant season or whether it is during the growing season, um, with most glyphosate treatments or really as far as I know, all glyphosate treatments, you want to be treating the, uh, your beach during the growing season, during, uh, full leaf expansion. Um, and there's some evidence to suggest that doing it later in the summer, um, might even be better when, um, perhaps the tree doesn't have as much time to recover, but you might also have a draw from the leaves going down toward the roots later in summer as the tree prepares to store energy where you get better translocation. Um, some of the, the, uh, triclopyr like basal bark treatments, if it's not in a in a water carrier if you're if you're dealing with the right formulation of triclopyr that can be in an oil carrier that's something that at least one of the pluses of it is you can do it um, any time of year including the winter as long as you're not just before or during or immediately after rain as long as the snow is not too deep to get at the the base of the tree um, that's that's one potential benefit there but I have, in just a few instances, seen where the beach could be controlled just by cutting, but they were very aggressive cuts where by far most of the trees were being removed as part of a timber harvesting operation, um, and it was all cut <laughs> during the summer. So cut they cut the all summer. these yep. Yep, these yep. trees are fully leafed out. They do this aggressive cut, and the beach actually do sprout back, and then they like sun scald and wither back. And in other areas that they tried to do the same thing, but it was more of a shelter wood. So it wasn't really that aggressive of a regeneration cut. It's like, it was just enough that it came back to beach and it was like, okay, you should either maybe cut it more heavily or maybe use some, uh, some herbicide. And uh, well, one, one last thing, one technique that I've, I haven't seen any research, but people talk about it and I've seen it in the field. People talk about high stumping where you're, let's say doing one of these heavy cuts, these big timber harvests over a wide area, you're doing it during the summer, you're cutting every stem of beach that you can find and you're trying to kill the beach and they leave like a four or five foot stump on the tree to allow it to, to sprout back and then get sun scalded and kind of wither back. And I guess, again, I haven't seen the research to prove that this is actually more effective, but that's uh, considered, um, more effective at actually limiting the, the re-sprouts from beach uh, coming from the roots, leaving that extra little stem on it. Yeah, and I will say this. My experience has been, and I did this on my personal property in a particular area where I did find some trees that I, I weren't, I was not promoting beach in a particular area, which was surrounded an area that I was promoting beach. So it was an interesting little dynamic. And those trees were of saw timber quality. These were pole-sized trees, poor form, et cetera. Um, so anyhow, I cut those trees and sun skull did actually kill, you know, any, I guess, grow back, et cetera. So, you know, the, the sun of the sun obviously penetrates. And how does that work, Tim? I don't, I don't necessarily understand that. The, the tree becomes less susceptible or it's not capable to handle that volume of sunlight. And it just, because of its intolerance, just, just weathers away, it dries it out. Well, I also suspect that it's because it are the, it's these new leaves that haven't hardened off, so to speak, that if you were to take that tree and just release it 
and those beech leaves that were already on that established tree suddenly got a whole lot of sunlight, I think the tree would do just fine. In fact, it might do better. But those new leaves that are just coming back, back and sprouting out and now it's late in summer and you cut the tree when most of its energy was already in the top part of the tree and a lot of that's depleted but now it's trying to sprout back with that new spring leaf and it's 90 degrees outside and the sun is beating down and you know the plant cells are still trying to put lignin in the you know lignify so that they can retain water and it's just like it's this tender little leaf that's coming out that just can't handle the the sun at that time of year yeah and i've I've seen root suckers get sun scald in certain instances as well which is just just interesting um anyhow so just all interesting points something to consider there's always you know we're talking one species and the i think the point of this podcast was to think and recognize that there's so much variation and beyond the variation, uh, uh, you know, tree seed, uh, I'm sorry, trees themselves and thinking kind of at the depth of, okay, what is this doing for my landscape? You know, how do I manage it? And it's thinking about each one of these tree species individual. And I think it's really important that we kind of look at the, the properties that we're managing at this level, rather than just kind of globally. And um, I think it's, it's important to figure out what trees we want to keep and what trees we want to get, get rid of and have some basis of that. And, and Tim is obviously a great resource for that. That's why he's on the podcast. All right, Tim, I think that's it for us. I think, uh, I think this is a great topic. We've been wanting to have this conversation for about a couple of years now. So I'm happy that we, we had it uh, on the air and I uh, you know, appreciate you. What, what else you got going on this summer? What are the other key things you're, you're working on? Measuring trees, putting paint on trees, putting herbicide in trees. <laughs> <laughs> yep, just cruising, marking, tallying, scaling forest management plans, making maps. Uh, you know, a good number of those plans are forest management plans, but are more wildlife based than the objectives. So, uh, just yeah, same same kind of work. Yep. So, green fire forestry. You can get a hold of Tim. Obviously, if you want to get a hold of me to get a hold of Tim. You know, send me an email and I'll push you over to him, give you his number. You can get a hold of him. Tim, appreciate the time today, man. It was good catching up and uh, we'll talk again soon. All right. Thanks for having me. All right, man. It's always fun. Yep. See you. Bye. Bye bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.